Well, I have that it's time. Maybe a couple more will gather with us. That'd be welcome. Let me offer a prayer. Lord, we are thankful for this evening, for those gathering on site, online, to uh, hear again how it is that one of your disciples was drawn to you and his testimony to your mercy. Give us this wisdom that we also might offer our lives as a sacrifice. Amen. Well, I don't know if you enjoyed this chapter. There was a little bit more, but it was philosophical description rather than philosophy. I think maybe that's more um, within our grasp, but um, uh, this one kind of follows a bit of an outline. Just want to help you so that you didn't miss it. The first two chapters, one and two, um, are as straightforward a statement of why he's engaged in this project as we're going to get. There's been sentences here and there, but these two paragraphs give us the reason and even the cause and effect for all this. Then he begins, this is really a chapter on how he broke with Manichaeism. It had a hold on him for, I think he says, nine years. So this would be, though he says this is in his 28th year, we would reckon it his 27th year. So this has held him since he was 18. So from 18 to 27, this is what tantalized him, though he had some doubts and some great hopes about it all along for, um, for, for the nine years of, uh, of his late youth. In the middle of it, he breaks off and talks about um, science. And uh, that might strike you as odd. Science is a competitor, he thinks, to Manichaeism, and he thinks it wins. So he has to break off and say, I knew it was better. I knew it was more accurate. But why didn't I go with it? Um, and then at the end, um, it, it sounds as if he's damning science because it's not godly. It doesn't recognize God. But if the contest is only between Manichaeism and science, science, philosophy, natural philosophy, um, uh, I think that's the category we would put it in. It wins. It still needs God, but it seems to seems to seems to be more accurate. This flat out in its predictive qualities and things like that. So let me read one and two slowly. It's a starter. Accept the sacrifice that is my testimony from writing hand that hears my speaking tongue, the hand you formed and filled with its energy so that it could testify in your name and heal all my bones so that they can say, master, who is like you? Let me stop right there. He thinks that he is offering a sacrifice to God and the sacrifice is in the form of a testimony. All right. So this is the gift. I'm going to give my testimony. The testimony is this, what we call the confessions. All right. And in the process, there will be healing for him. But whoever testifies to you, whoever does this, whoever talks to you about himself is hardly instructing you 
as to what happens inside him, because the heart that's locked up hardly locks out your eyes, nor does people's hard surface fend off your hand, but you melt that barrier whenever you want, either in pity or in punishment, and no one can hide from your heat. Right? This is, this is Augustine before a sovereign God. <coughs> Excuse me, Jerry. Yeah. What, what chapter are you reading? Uh, five. I'm sorry. Five. Oh, five. I thought it was six this week. Well, then you will be the expert next week. <laughs> Twice over. I read it too. It is five, right? Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, I would be so assured. I would just know Bela got it wrong. Now that I'm the age I am, we, we are on five, right? <laughs> it, could, it could be me. Thank you. You're welcome. But let my soul praise you so that it loves you. Praise is in order to love and let it testify to you about your mercies that it praises you. That's the chain of logic. If I remember your mercies to me, that is thinking over my childhood and my youth and all the ways that you led me to yourself, the great mercy, all your mercies along the way to that great mercy. If I do that, well, then I'm going to praise you. You, you are masterful. And if I praise you, I will love you more. And that for Augustine will always be the end. To be loved and to love. Everything else is in second place and defers to it. All right. So that's the logic. I'm going to examine myself so that I can see where your mercies were all along. If I see where your mercies all along, that'll cause me to praise you. I'll, I'll see how masterful you are at this. And that'll cause me to love you more when I praise you. The whole of your creation never leaves off. Never lets your praise fall silent. Creation's always doing this. I, don't, I didn't always do it, but creation always does this. Every mouth that breathes is turned toward you in praise. Not accepting every beast with the breath of life. That's everything. Well, every object without it. Everything praises you. Uh, stones cry out. As these are heard through the mouths of those contemplating you, let all this raise our soul out of its weariness and into you. And let our soul lean on the things you made and let it pass over to you who wondrously made them. And in that place is our restoration and our true strength. So there is benefit to him in offering the sacrifice. Not only that he will love God more, but he's admitting a weariness. This has just been long. It's been hard. I did everything I could to ignore you, to flee you. Frankly, that's a full-time job because you never let up. I was seeking satisfaction in other things and you wouldn't give me a fullness of satisfaction in anything else. This has just been hard. When, when we're together, finally, I find rest. I get restoration. I get strength. The second one, let the restless unrighteous go. Let them run from you. But you see them. You split the shadows apart. That's a discerning eye. And look, everything around them is beautiful, but they themselves are ugly. But how have they ever hurt you? What have they ever done to discredit your dominion, which is just and unsullied from the sky all the way down to the lowest part 
of the world. Where in fact have they fled to when they have fled from your face? And where won't you find them? They've turned tail and so didn't see you seeing them. And in their blind rush, they ran into you. So imagine God is behind. They turn, they turn their backs to God. They run away. They don't see that he sees them. He's looking at them, but they can't see him looking at him. This is, this is the uh, vision you're supposed to hold. And while they're running away, they run right into him. He's behind and he's before. Because you don't abandon anything you've created. I got to tell you, folks, that, I say we're evangelicals. One of the defaults of evangelicalism has a fault. And that is God's had it. He's just done. We're too wearisome for him. And he's going to wash it all away. And he's going to start all over again. If so, he hasn't redeemed his creation. He's exchanged it. He didn't save anybody. He started anew with other bodies. Augustine reads the Bible the way I think it's meant to be read, that God does not worry of his creation and he will not let it go. He didn't let us go. And this sense that the end will be a redeeming, a renewing, a restoring, a recreating, not an abandonment and a fresh start. <clears throat> because you don't abandon anything you've created. The unrighteous ran into you and were rightly harried as they ducked away from your clemency colliding with your justice and falling into your severity. Plainly, they don't know that you're everywhere as no place confines you within its boundaries, that you alone are near at hand for those who make as if to distance themselves from you. Let them turn around then and look for you because you haven't abandoned them, but you've created the way, what you've created the way they've abandoned you. And see, there you are in their hearts, in the hearts of those who testify to you and cast themselves on you and cry in your arms, referring to himself, since they've come to you by such trying paths, and you obligingly dry their tears, and they weep all the more and rejoice in their weeping, since you, Master, aren't some human being or other flesh and blood. You, Master, who made them, remake them and comfort them. And where was I myself when I was looking for you? You were right in front of me. But I had left myself and couldn't find me. How much less was I able to find you? So in the end, he changes the metaphor. He, he can be cute if that's what you think this is. But in the end, the only thing that was lost was I had lost me. You never lost me. And in trying to flee from you, I lost myself. All right. Okay, now we're going to jump into the narrative. In the sight of my God, I will speak openly about the, 12th, the 28th year of my life. Again, it's 27 now. There had come to Carthage a certain prelate 
of the Manichaean sect whose name was Faustus. He was a great snare in the devil's service and many people were baited by his tasty eloquence and became entangled with him. There's gonna be a lot of dinner time metaphors here. From the first, I praise that eloquence. Remember, Augustine's all about rhetoric, but I nevertheless distinguished it from the truth of the matters I was keen to learn about. Yeah, the guy was good. He was glib, he could preach. Um, he was a spellbinder, but I had questions. Was he going to answer them or wasn't he? I wasn't scrutinizing what kind of half adequate dinnerware his style was, but what knowledge this Faustus, such a famous name among those people, would serve up in it for me to devour. So the metaphor here is, I, I, I don't know where else to find this metaphor except here, that we would talk about form and content. This guy was all form and no content. He is golden dinnerware. He's gold forks, knives, and spoons. But that doesn't mean anything on the plate's worth eating. That's the metaphor. Okay? So the dinnerware, yeah, this was good stuff. This guy was good. He was really good. But did he really have anything to say? Okay? Gary. Yeah. So how would somebody like that make his living? Is, is he being, is he like a teacher? Is he getting paid from people that? Yeah, to he's getting to? paid. Uh, he's getting paid. Um, he, um, obviously he's famous, right? I mean, yeah, he's famous. He's famous. I don't know if his empire wife's famous, or he's just famous among people who have these interests. Uh, I think the modern counterpart is a TV preacher. Okay. I mean, you want to ask, so who supports this stuff? Can't you see past it? You know, the, you know, whatever it is, Kirk, that you and I would fault, the prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah. It's like, really? Okay, that was slick. That was really quite a show. That's a heck of a music program you got there. And wouldn't mind having that suit in my closet. But pal, you didn't say anything. So going back to the 300s, things haven't changed. <laughs> they, they haven't changed. I remember uh, Lois and I were in the car. I was feeling horribly guilty. I really was. It was our vacation. It was Sunday morning. We decided not to go to church wherever it was. I think we were driving across the, like the Rockies. So we'll listen to somebody on the radio. I won't tell you. So I'm going to badmouth the guy who it was. And um, comes on the radio. This is when we were young. This is 25 years ago, something like that. Uh, 30 years ago. And the sermon was, love is like a souffle. You give it some time and it can rise. And life is good and don't flowers grow in the springtime. That's a Hallmark card, pal. That's not a sermon. But if I told you his name, everybody here would know it. You had the same thoughts that, <laughs> yeah. that uh, Augustine had after hearing him. Yeah, yeah. He had a, had a nice voice, has a manner, whatever. And uh, Augustine's going to pick apart his good parts and pick apart the absence of content, too. He's going to do both. Um, the primary remarks of rumor held him to be thoroughly expert in every prestigious field, but he was supposed to be an especially polished adept 
in the liberal arts. That's the first time I've heard adept as a noun. Always think of it as some people are more or less adept. He called um, the Sarah Rudin, the translator in mine, calls him a polished adept in the liberal arts. So this guy knew his liberal arts. This was his best, <coughs> best subject. Since I read many works of the philosophers, that's part of liberal arts, and still retained what I learned. Well, yeah, you're 27. You're not supposed to forget your whole graduate education by the time you're 27, Augustine. Thanks for hanging on to it that long. I now proceeded to compare selected material from this source with those long, fanciful stories of the Manichaeans. Again, their, their stuff is, uh, I know some of it, it's, it's just bizarre. It's implausible. And I found more plausible the statements of those with only an aptitude for evaluating the material world, notwithstanding that the master of it was hardly among their discoveries. Okay, yeah, they don't know that God's the creator, but they did a better job of thinking through creation, the, the, the natural order. This is because you're great, master, yet you have regard for lowly things while you recognize over-exalted things from afar off. Well, you, you know that the, the lowly he brings near, the arrogant he pushes away. And you don't approach any people but those trampled down at heart. God loves a humbled heart. You aren't, and you aren't discovered by the high and proud, not even if, in their painstaking expertise, they count the stars and the grains of sand and the measure the tracks full of heavenly bodies and track down the stars on their trails. What he's saying here is, man, these uh, part, part sounds like um, astronomy to me. And this also has to do with tides and um, lengths of days and seasons of the years. And he's going to spend quite a bit of time on good grief. These guys can predict eclipses. If that's not impressive, what is? I mean, they can tell you what the sun and the moon is going to do. That's that's impressive. Well, frankly, I still think it's impressive that they, after all these years, that, that some people can do it. But here's, he says, but, but they're not, they don't know that you're behind it all. There's an arrogance in science. There's an arrogance in natural philosophy. And that arrogance that comes with uh, really impressive knowledge has become a barrier for them to know you. Four, they sought all this out using their minds and using the talents you gave them. And they discovered many things. I mean, he, he thinks these natural philosophers are really good at what they do. Many years ahead of time, they predicted eclipses of those illuminations, the sun and the moon, on which day they would happen and in which hour and how much would be obscured and their calculations didn't deceive them. They could tell you the moon was going to go by and it was going to eclipse the southern part of it and it was going to happen at 1.03 in the morning. Whatever. The eclipses came about just as predicted and the predictors wrote up the principles they'd hunted down, which are on read even today, and on them are based new predictions of the year, the month of the year, the day of the month, the hour of the day, when an eclipse will happen and of the portion of its light, the moon or the sun will lose. And it's going to happen just as it's predicted. I trust this stuff. They predicted what's going to happen in the future. It's going to happen that way. And people who don't know anything about this just marvel. They're stunned. And those who do know 
shoot up in their own estimation in our praise to the skies. Like, hey, we're really good and everybody else knows we're really good. Through their irreverent uppityness, they recede from you and suffer an eclipse of your light. Well, okay, everybody likes different poets. Everybody likes different aesthetics. But I gotta tell you, I like that. That in the middle of it, it's, yeah, they, they can, what's the song? They can predict the total eclipse of the moon. And they don't know that they're in an eclipse. They just don't see you. Okay. Okay, this is fairly close to a country western song. Yeah. It's a little on the cute side, maybe. But I confess, I like it. All right. Uh, by the way, you can, you can read contemporary theologians forever, and you'll never get anything like that. Humor, humor is not taught in seminaries. It just doesn't happen. <clears throat> they can see a future eclipse so far ahead of time. They don't see the own eclipse right now, for they don't reverently investigate the source of their genius for making these investigations of theirs. Note the move there. It's not that they fail to see the God behind the sun and the moon. They don't see the God behind their own genius. Who is it that you think made you this smart? This isn't about Aquinas, uncaused cause. This is about relationships. But how do you think you got to be the way you are? Um, in the character in which they've created themselves as a gift to you, they don't slaughter like fluttering birds the lofty flights of their self-regard. Remember Augustine's offering his testimony as a sacrifice. They don't slaughter like the fish of the sea, their prying inquiries, the rounds they make of mysterious byways and this, all these things which are really stupendous. They don't offer any of this. They don't slaughter their self-indulgences that make them like beasts of the field so that you, God, a voracious fire, the fires that that, that come on sacrifices on altars can consume these dead preoccupations and create their owners a new and everlasting life. They don't offer any of this to you, but they don't know the way your word through which you made those things they enumerate and through which you made their very selves who make these calculations along with the perception through which they discern the things they enumerate and the mind that lets them do that but there is no calculating your wisdom. He himself, the only begotten, was created to be wisdom and justice and holiness for us. He was counted among us and he paid the reckoning, the tribute to Caesar. They don't know the way to come down to him from themselves and to go up to him, to go up to him through him. They don't know this road. And they think they're up there shining on high with the stars. But look how they've crashed down to the ground. That's probably a reference to Satan who is thrown down from heavens. They, who's the, uh, what is he, the bright shining star and he's, he's cast down. And their heart, empty of wisdom, is darkened over. They do say many true things about what has been created. But the truth itself, the artisan of creation, they don't reverently seek and therefore they don't find him. Now, this is a more typical way of thinking about it. How can a scientist who knows that billions of years ago and billions and billions of this and billions and billions and billions of that, how, 
when they think on that kind of scale, how, how do they not know that a God needs to be behind it? Um, we can argue about that, but what's, what Augustine is arguing here is that natural philosophy is natural philosophy. It's not, if you don't like Augustine, so Augustine, the only thing out there is to be theology. You just can't let these guys go and do their thing. If you don't like Augustine, here's what you might argue. So you find out that the brain surgeon that uh, has been called in to uh, get rid of a tumor, and this guy's got the best track record in the world, and he's, uh, he's an atheist, and he's going to save your life. You're going to pass on it to go get, go get somebody from your church who theologically you agree with to do the surgery? Um, probably not, friends. Probably not. So can Augustine, we'll see this, I think, even in this, in this book, can he find a place for them as God's gift, even if they don't know they're God's gift? Okay, that'll be the challenge. Or do they find him and recognize him as God? They don't honor him as God or give him thanks and all their ideas. They fade away to nothing. And they claim to be wise, attributing to themselves qualities that are yours. And in doing so, they strive in their depraved blindness, actually to attribute to you what belongs to them, plainly imputing lies to you who are the truth. That's where they're claiming divine knowledge of things. And they do get some things wrong. Who are the truth and transforming the glory of God who can't perish into a similicrum of a human being who's going to rot and of birds and four-footed animals and snakes and they turn your truth into a lie and they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator if you have a translation i have they'll make a reference that this is romans 1 18 through 25 in which paul wants to lay out his conclusion three chapters later is going to be all we have sinned and gone astray each has turned to his own way that sin is ubiquitous it's in all of us and it's in every part of us what's his proof of this Humanity has actually mistaken creation for the creator. You can't get it more wrong than that. If you don't know there's God and then there's everything else, well, then what is it that you do know? That's, that's the most basic thing. There's God and then there's everything else. And if they confuse those, those two, everything else is going to be upside down. All right, we've just had our little excursus on science. He thinks they're brilliant. He thinks their truth is truth, but they don't, <coughs> they're not believers. So just don't think science is a substitute for knowledge of God. All right, six. Nevertheless, in all this, I retained in my mind many true statements of the philosophers based on the created natural world, right? I know the things they teach, and I kept seeing that the logic behind these statements coincided with mathematics, the divisions of the years following in a fixed order, and the visible evidence of the stars. I compared all this with the statements of Manny in his copious and most verbosely raving writings on the subject, and no solid rationale met me there for solstices or equinoxes or eclipses of illuminating heavenly bodies or anything else of the kind that I'd learned in books of this immediate universe's science. In Manichaean literature, I was ordered to believe 
Yet there was no coincidence with any logic that had been put to the test with calculations and with my own eyes. The two sets of claims were very widely separated. So Manichaean is, is, is uh, working on an authority that uh, these writings, I'm not sure that we have them. I don't, I don't actually, I think we don't have any of it. But the descriptions like this are that they are fantastic. They're fabulous. They're fables. They're, they're, you can't get from point A to point B with the logic. It's just, again, it's bizarre. And he tried to match that up with what is known, predicting eclipses. And their, their reasoning for why eclipses take place just fails. They got no math. They got no science. They, they, they pretend to know what they don't know. Right? Master, God of truth, is it really possible that whoever knows that sort of thing, ipso facto, pleases you? In other words, if you just know it, is that good enough? No, because even anyone knowing all of that, but not knowing you, is an unfortunate person. It's a happy one, on the other hand, who knows you, even if he doesn't know any natural philosophy. Okay? I, I agree with that statement, but yet you can start getting nervous here. So now we don't like education, Augustine. So like you've got one of the best ones in the empire and now that's a bad thing. Um, I gotta tell you, I was raised in a Pentecostal home in a Pentecostal church so I was 15. My mother's oldest brother was, there was a two pastor church, it was a huge church, it's still a huge church in Detroit. Um, and uh, my uncle Sonny uh, would brag, would brag that part of his call to ministry was that he didn't graduate from high school because you can be overeducated or you can be educated beyond your intelligence. And uh, it, just the, now, it kind of helps if you've got your Bible memorized, which you pretty much did. <laughs> That's a good thing if you're a preacher. Um, and yeah, this is my uncle Sonny. Like, um, He's a great guy. Love being around. My, my path was my path was a little bit different, um, but that that was the thinking. And they thought that you know, okay, how many first class scientists do you know who are believers? After you say Francis Collins, I want to know who the second one is. Yeah. All right. Um, if you're going to line up 10 fields of human inquiry or activity, industry, and you're going to bet which one has the lower percentage of uh, orthodox believers, I think conventional wisdom, rumor, is you're not going to find a lot of scientists when atheists debate Christians it's not because they're plumbers or naval admirals. Uh, it's, it's because they're scientists. That, that would be the other choice, a choice that seems to prevent. All right, that can be overblown. And I've met Francis Collins. Um, this is a really fine person and um, uh, uh, a wonderful believer, a, a great witness. I think it's about the only believer that NPR allows to talk about his faith. 
because um, NPR likes them uh, and for good reasons. So what's what's Augustine going to do here? What turn is he going to make? Is he going to make an anti-educational turn here? In fact, the one who knows both you and science. So if he knows you and adds science, it doesn't make him any happier on account of the science. He's happy because of you alone. If in recognizing you, he glorifies you as God and gives you thanks and doesn't fade away into nothingness amid all his speculations. A person who knows that he possesses a tree and thanks you for the use of it, even though he doesn't know how many cubits high it is or how far it stretches from side to side, is better off than the person who measures it and counts all its branches, but doesn't possess it or know or love its creator. In the same way, just say a person is committed and faithful and thus a whole universe of riches belongs to him. And though he has nothing, it's as if he possesses everything because he's a part of you to whom everything is enslaved. It's idiotic to doubt that a person actually unaware of the great bear orbit, um, you know what that is, um, is better off in every sense than the person who can measure the sky and count the stars and weigh up the components of the universe, but leaves aside you who've placed everything in order through measure and number and weight. So he prefers the person who looks up at the sky and believes the old myths about the great bear in the sky. We call it Ursus Major. Okay? And these are going to be, it's going to become more clear. These are people in this congregation. They, they don't know astronomy. They can't tell you why some stars seem to move and some stars don't. They can't tell you why there's eclipses. They, they don't know this stuff. He kind of shrugs his shoulder, like, so really how important is that? Remember, he got on this whole, I want to talk about science kick because I knew this stuff. I was impressed by this stuff. I wasn't satisfied by this stuff. And I tested the Manichaean stuff against it. And the Manichaean stuff really fell short. These guys know what they're doing. But they don't know you. Is I think... Remember, he just got done telling us he's going to publish this. <clears throat> it's going to be a testimony to God. I think he's just, be, well, what do I know? Being overly careful here. I don't think I would feel the need to be this careful that when I say these guys know stuff, I didn't mean to say they knew the most important stuff. Although predicting an eclipse, I think is pretty impressive. If you ask me, all right? I think math can be very impressive. So, Anyway, who asked Manny, whoever that was? Th this guy is kind of lost in history, and I'm going to take this seriously. It's lo he's lost to Augustine. He's not quite sure who this guy was. He was a Persian. You know, think of these three kings from the east that come and visit Jesus. Is that Zo Zoroastrianism? It sounds kind of like that, which is, again, pretty fabulous stuff and has a lot to do with stars. Uh, to write about all this, that when without any expertise in it at all, a person pursue a knowledge of reverence. You've said to humankind, look here, awe before divinity is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Manny might, of course, not have known anything about that, even if he knew the other stuff flawlessly. But inasmuch as he didn't know the latter, he didn't even know the regular stuff, yet had the shameless gall to set up as a teacher of it, he could have, in the least, have known what it means to feel awe. He couldn't even get total eclipse of the moon stuff right. It's not going to get you right. Professing science is as good as doing nothing. Awe means confessing you. 
Hence, the only result of that renegade so copiously addressing scientific topics was his confutation and condemnation by those who had actually mastered these topics, making it red-handedly evident how little his understanding must be worth in matters even more arcane, like the knowledge of God. And in fact, in order to boost his prestige, he was at pains to persuade people that the Holy Spirit, which consoles and enriches your faithful followers, had manifested his very self with its full authority in himself. So in the end, what's his last move? Listen to me, I listen to God. Friends, I know the temptation, but that's not a good move. It's okay, I might not be right, I might be right. You know what, you might think I'm right, but here's the fact, God's behind this and it's just right. Discussion over, hey, thanks for the conversation. So Augustine's, Augustine's not feeling good about this experience with the Faustus coming to town. Um, let's move on to nine, beginning nine. When I listen to a Christian brother who doesn't know about natural philosophy and gets something wrong, I look on him and his views with forbearance. As long as he doesn't believe anything inappropriate about you, uh, master, the creator of everything, I don't consider it a problem for him if by chance he lacks knowledge about the distribution and disposition of an object in your creation. It is a problem, however, if he thinks what he says belongs to the essential structure of religious instruction, or if he obstinately and audaciously asserts something about which he knows nothing. So with forbearance, you can forgive a member of your congregation who just doesn't know and who thinks something that isn't so. As long as it doesn't touch on the essentials of the faith, he doesn't, he's not telling you this is the essential of faith. Like you need to agree with me on this thing about which Augustine thinks he's wrong um, in order to be right about anything. And who doesn't present it obstinately as if he and only he um, can be right something he doesn't know about. So let me tell you the first book club I ever had. I was young. I made a mistake. I'm older. I think I still make the same one. So I was uh, finishing my PhD. I wanted to read books with members of the congregation. I realized I'd probably never read a, a, a book that had ever been on a bestseller. Well, yes, unless Plato's Apology is a bestseller, but, but no Hemingway, no Faulkner, none of that. So I said, if you get 10 people to read a book, I'll read the book and give you an evening. Get five of it. We can kind of talk back and forth, but get 10, I'll give you an evening. Well, that was a challenge. Yeah, and, you, and you get to pick the book. More to the point, you have to pick the book. I want to know what my congregation is reading, and I want to read some of it with you. So they picked this book. I can't remember it, but a man dies, goes to heaven, has memory of enough stuff to write a whole book of the things he saw on the other side of death. And then he's called back, um, I don't know, seconds later, and he's revived by medical personnel. And the word heaven is in the title. So they want to know, they, so they said, what the pastor thinks about this. The pastor thinks this is a bunch of hoo-ha. This stuff is just made up. There, there ain't nothing to it. 
course, the pastor could be entirely wrong. There's, that's a real possibility, friends. Uh, I, I'm pretending to know something about which I don't know, but I just think, I just think it's, I think it's silly. I think it's foolishness. I don't want my members reading that stuff. I don't want them believing that stuff. And I said that only to discover that these 12 people thought this thing should be included in the Bible. It's like, okay, maybe I should ask them first what they think. And then a little bit more softly, Jerry, to come around. French, you might want to know that of all the ordination exams you take, and they're rigorous, I, on the first pass, flunked the theology exam. And here's how I did it. Uh, they give you, a, a, they were all case studies. So you're in a Christian education meeting, you're going to find a new curriculum, and somebody says, hey, we need a curriculum based on the Bible. And the second person says, nah, if they want to read their Bibles, let them read their Bible. Let's get a curriculum that goes, says something different. And somebody else says, yeah, the Bible's too confusing anyway, and I don't get much help from it, and so let's get a curriculum that teaches things that we think are more relevant. And the conversation goes back and forth with a bunch of people. Then the bottom is, you know, you're the pastor of the church. How do you respond? So I'm to, I'm to know the doctrine of the authority and inspiration and illumination of scripture. I'm to know um, uh, how to manage this. So you won't be surprised. I started out with, well, the first person is mostly right. The second person is altogether wrong. And here's the 10 reasons why the second person is altogether wrong. And I just went through this whole thing. And this part of the exam, I think it was a two-hour essay, um, that part of the exam. And I write it, and you get three readers. If two flunky, you flunk. If two pass you, you pass. If one passes you and one fails you, it goes to a third reader, and they break the tie. I get it back from a third reader. Somebody thought I did okay. And the comment on it was, Mr. Andrews. You're the pastor of the church. You talk to people pastorally. It's like, oh yeah, right. That that was in the question. Yeah, okay. Never mind the fact that I've never been a pastor. I'm a graduate student, and yeah, I thought you asked me what's right from wrong. What other kind of questions are there, other than right or wrong? Eh? So Jerry had to do some growing up, and, and he had to take a theology exam twice. But love, our mother, puts up even with a weakness of this sort in faith's infancy until the newcomer rises to maturity and can't be blown around by every pedagogical wind. So when might this be so? When I'm with grieving families and people who comfort grieving families, I hear statements that I don't think the Bible teaches. He's looking down on us now. I don't think our, I don't think the dead in Christ are looking down on us. Um, the, um, the, he's with you in spirit comment is okay. If that meant is in my memory and we're not to lose memory of our loved ones another way that we can praise God, but that the person's really not absent. Well, then why are we grieving? The person's absent. This is a loss, not, not a loss for our loved one, but a huge loss for us. So what, why can't we just say that? That um, 
Um, and, and, and there are legitimate competing ways of thinking about this. He's with Jesus now. Um, the challenge to that is then what, why are we waiting for a resurrection? If person's with Jesus now, I think of my father as waiting for his resurrection, that he's Paul. Let's just talk about being asleep. He's, he's dead. Yes. He's in God's care. He, he cannot be harmed, but the next, the, the next great event is resurrection of Jesus. But having said that, Jesus turns to the thief on the cross next to him and says, this very day you will be with me in paradise. I don't know. Am I supposed to look for a second opinion? <laughs> That's pretty straightforward. So, yeah, there are legitimate competing ways to think about this. But that he's looking down on us. Um, the things that we are, but I'm not going to challenge it. Is my point here. The person's not now teaching the faith um, and saying, this is, this is the faith of the church. This person's offering comfort. Got to give them some slack on that one. The motivation is near perfect. And these are the kinds of things we say to one another. Right. We were talking about uh, providence, forgot the context, and... Um, Maybe it was about the pandemic and, you know, what, you know, I'm not a scientist. How much should I know and not know? But I, I know I've said to this congregation, I think I've said it to everyone. Um, don't ask me to be even dumber than I am. If you're in a hospital bedroom and you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and it's a pretty gloomy diagnosis and prognosis, and you've been smoking three packs of cigarette a day for 40 years. When you ask me, pastor, why did this happen to me? Just the, well, the answer is, I don't know because other people have done it and it hasn't happened, but really, are you confused about the cause and effect in this one? You know, it's, it's, I think I'm going to be more helpful by saying, well, we know the answer to that one. I think you're asking, what is God doing in this? Well, that's worth a conversation and a lot of praying that we, that we can do together. Right. Uh, Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, when I was younger, I think I read everything he ever wrote. And uh, I thought it was prophet. Um, I met him when he was dying of cancer. It was very public that he was dying. And uh, he was asked a question by a college student. Um, what do you think? Don't you think God sent you this cancer? because you're such a strong reformed, you know, Calvinist, Augustinian theologian. And his answer was surprising. It was, well, no, I got cancer because cancer's out there and it just gets a certain amount of us. And I wish it didn't get me, but it's got me and I'm going to die from it. And there is God's will for me and everything. I'm not going to know God's will for me in this. Um, I'm not going to be able to second guess it. And I'm not going to worry about the cause and effect. I'm going to prepare for the end. And I wanted to say, good grief, you are Francis Schaeffer. You are supposed to know God's will about everything in everybody's life. Um, but, but there was this humility that, who knows? In contrast, as a teacher, an author, a leader, and authority to those he won over to his opinions, Manny 
had the gall to make his followers think they were following not a human being like any other, but your own Holy Spirit. Well, that's not going to work out well with Augustine. So who wouldn't see fit to curse his monstrous senselessness and send it packing out of your midst if in any particular instance he'd been found guilty of telling lies? Nevertheless, at that early point, I hadn't determined transparently whether the changes from longer to shorter days and nights and back again throughout the year, why, why um, the further north, especially he's going to go to Rome at the, by the end of this chapter, you, North Africa, where he was, was north of the equator, but not so far north that the length of days differs. When we're in Ghana, when we're in the Congo, um, when we're in Uganda, sun comes up at six o'clock, it goes down at six o'clock, 365 days a year. Okay. But he knows that there's longer and shorter days and he's not sure why that's so. Um, but nothing that I read about in the non-Manichaean books could be explained according to Manny's formulations as well. These guys had it worked out. Manichaeans didn't. So as long as I thought that this might be the case, I remained unsure on which side the truth lay, but because of the holiness so confidently attributed to the man, I placed his authority in charge of my faith. Augustine is admitting he's going on the guy's reputation. So for nearly nine years of my life, I spent as an auditor of the sect and as a wandering derelict in my intellect. I awaited with unhealthily strained longing for this Faustus person, other adherents whom I had chance to meet and who lacked the wherewithal to parry my inquiries. I had lots of questions. They couldn't answer them. Kept promising me, well, when he comes, he will. When he arrived and conferred himself on conferences with me, he would effortlessly deal with these questions and even any more momentous ones I happen to have, disentangling them and freeing them from the slightest naughtiness. That's the promise. When he did come, I found him pleasant, well-spoken man who nattered on more agreeably than others, but on the very same subjects. Yet what good was the handsomest waiter, we're back to dinner time metaphor, when I was thirsty, there's a misprint in your in your thing. Did you catch it, Courtney? I don't know why I catch that. I think it's, I think it's diagnosable if you do. I think we're supposed to be reading, not proofreading at this point. Um, when I was thirsty for costlier vintages, my ears, uh, Charlotte, I'll bet you caught it too, didn't you? On first reading? Yeah. My ears, you guys do this when I'm preaching? Because you can't, you can't tell how I smell when I'm preaching, can you? You guys can be scary. My ears had already had their fill of the kinds of things he was saying. And these didn't seem better because they were being said better. Like that. And they didn't seem true just because they were skillfully expressed. And his soul didn't seem wise just because his face suggested wisdom. And he spoke with proper diction. However, the people who promised me, promised him to me all the time weren't competent critics. And he seemed to them shrewd and wise simply because his speaking gave them pleasure. Well, this is also um, a helpful self-critique. Augustine's a rhetorician. And in Greek contexts, when especially the comedians, Aristophanes and others, 
wanted to make fun, including of, of Socrates, they accused them of sophist, what we call now sophistry, called them sophists, because these were people who would come to town and would be spellbinding speakers, content irrelevant. In fact, they got bonus points if they could convince you beyond all reasonable doubt of what you knew to be wrong. Don't you know that that person's a good debater? Um, that 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 he can take the pro side and he can win, and then he can take the con side and then side and he can win again. That's a debater. That's who you want on your side. I think we accuse lawyers in our society of that. I think um, uh, because because of lack of I want to say ethical moral um, motivation. Um, I have a friend who's an attorney, Lloyd Don't Hate Me, who says that he thinks it's a principle of justice that he presumes any potential client to be innocent until proven broke. <laughs> um, preachers can be accused of something like that, but usually they get accused of actually believing the silliness they're preaching, not being cynical about it. But I think I've seen cynicism. cynicism. I think cynicism is out there. I think people are, are repeating narratives and news and things. They have to know that's not so. They have to know it's not. But there's something else in it for them. But for the sophists, it was just the acclaim of, I can beat you at your own game. Where I, do, where I do like it was, you have to be as old as me, Barry Switzer used to be the coach of the Oklahoma Sooners, and he won a couple of national football championships in a row. It was really good. And Jimmy Johnson, who was uh, Texas, it was Nebraska and Texas were the two rivals of Oklahoma, said, yeah, that coach is so good, he can take hisens and beat Yorins, and then he can take Yorins and beat hisens. Well, that's a compliment. I understood at any rate that another class of people regards even the truth with suspicion and refuses to agree to it if it's presented in an elegant and inventive style. Oh, now we've got another group of people that if it is served up on a golden platter, then they won't believe it. Okay. So I don't know. My uncle Sonny just didn't trust people. His name was Bruce Gunn, but he was... His father was Bruce, so his name is Son. Do you ever watch the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall? Oh, yeah. That's my Uncle Sonny. I actually saw him beat somebody up in church. That was part of my call to ministry. Like, that was the coolest thing. Okay? Somebody was at, I, I, I don't remember all the details. I have to ask my mom about it all the time. But somebody was acting up. Well, it's a Pentecostal Sunday evening worship service. How do you know somebody's acting up? Like, what could you possibly be doing? And he just got him, got him in the headlock and dragged him out. And I'm thinking, I could be a preacher too. <clears throat> I understood there's another class who won't agree to it if it is served up with elegance. Me, how, oh, you know, I'm going to tell you this story. This is the story I want to tell. Best Courtney, story Courtney. ever, Jerry. What's that? Best story ever. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. This is true. University of Pittsburgh classics. I have a paper to write. Uh, the subject would bore you. 
um, but it didn't bore me. And I found out, you know, once, once in my graduate career, I wasn't beating a deadline. I had time. I'm going to play with this. I'm going to show these guys. <laughs> I know how to write, not just think. And I played with it. The, the paper almost rhymed by the time I finished it and turned it in. So I get it turned back and he says, Mr. Andrews, your research was excellent, but your rhetoric makes your research suspect. It's like, okay, I guess we won't be playing that game again. Like, just, just, just give them the facts and, and move on. Me, however, had already educated in your wondrous and mysterious ways. And I believe what you taught me, since it is true, and no one but you is a teacher of the truth, whatever the immediate place in which or the immediate source from which it shines forth. And I had thus already learned from you that a statement shouldn't seem true just because it's eloquently stated, nor false just because the symbols sounding forth from the lips are clumsy. Okay. He just kind of changed the subject. I wish he hadn't said clumsy. I wish he had said elegant. Then I, I would have been able to follow the thought. So just because it was stated eloquently doesn't mean it's true. The opposite of that is just because it's stated eloquently doesn't mean it's false either. Okay? If a charlatan tells you that God loves you, it's then a crucified Savior, to reconcile you to himself. The guy's still a charlatan, but it doesn't make the statement false. This is Paul in writing one of his letters saying, there's people out there preaching the gospel that are doing it just out of, I'm in jail. So they think they can score points where I can't score any and they're going to get ahead on whatever point scoring system there is. And they're just doing it out of competition. It's all false motives. And and what do I care? They're preaching the gospel. What they say is so, which is the point. Okay? On the other hand, I'd learned that a statement isn't true for the sole reason that its expression is unrefined or false merely because its style is suburb. Now we got back to the point. So just because the guy was good actually doesn't make it false. I'd learned that wisdom and dull-wittedness are like nutritious and worthless food and either can be served up in either fancy or plain words as either kind of food can be served in tableware. Remember that earlier metaphor of the dinnerware? Characterized by either urban sophistication or rustic simplicity, okay? City versus country. So I'm on, <coughs> I see a YouTube thing and the, the headline was, this pastor said this just before he died. So I'm expecting this guy to keel over in the pulpit. I got two and a half minutes to watch this. <clears throat> and what he says is, my wife of 55 years uh, died two and a half months ago. Um, I've not done well since then. I, I want to say I had a very, can I say a Southern accent? And he was rustic. And uh, his Bible was about this thick. And he was holding it. And um, not the kind of charm I think you look for. And... Um, and that uh, it's been hard. I thought it would get easier. It didn't get easier. It's just stayed hard. Um, but, but I've got more time. I'm supposed to be preaching the gospel with my time. So I'm preaching the gospel with my time. And I'm remarkably lonely. And 
this is hard. I didn't, I didn't think it would be this hard. And a day or two later, he dies. So the congregation celebrates. He gets to be with his wife and see how God was good to him. Well, that was rustic simplicity, all right? But it was also really good. That was helpful to a congregation. Um, I told my mother, I don't know, 100 times it's going to get easier. It didn't. It hasn't. It hasn't. Um, I was just flat out wrong about that. That's one of those platitudes you give to grieving people that just sounds right at the time. And um, so she thought, now it's an added burden. It became an added burden. Like I'm supposed to be doing better than I am. And, um, um, I like the guys, the, the simplicity. It's the simplicity on the far side of complexity. And, and an admission before his congregation, that I think you think because I'm the pastor, I'm supposed to slide through this stuff and triumph in it all. But this has just been hard. All right. Thus, the ardent appetite with which I'd waited for him during that long period was indeed sated to the point of delight by his gestures and his expressiveness and argument. He was kind of fun to listen to. And by the fitting words that came so easily to him as clothing, so to speak, for his views, I was delighted really. And along with many people, and even more than many people, I praised him to the skies. Augustine could. He knows how rhetoric works. This is a musician praising a musician. But I was irritated that as part of his crowded audiences, I wasn't allowed to force myself on his notice and share intimately with him in a conversational exchange the questions that were bothering me. But in time, I had the chance. And along with some intimates of mine, I proceeded to take command of his ears on an occasion when back and forth discussion wasn't inappropriate, and I put before him certain matters that concerned me. I found straight off that this was a person with no knowledge of the liberal arts, except for literary studies, and even there he was only at an ordinary level. What's an ordinary level? He'd read some speeches of Cicero and just a few of Seneca's books, and a certain number of the poet's works, and whatever tomes from his sect were in Latin and well-written. And he also had daily practice in conversation. These things contributed to his speaking ability, which was more pleasing and enticing due to the careful use of his intelligence within its limits, as well as a certain natural charm. Do I remember it right, Master my God, you who are the judge of my conscience? My heart's core is before you, and so is my recollection. Am I getting this right? I mean, you, it was you who at that time led me along in the mystery of your providence, remote from my sight, I, I couldn't see what you were doing, and you were already turning my sordid mistakes around and placing them before my face so that I would see them and hate them. You were helping me to see through this guy. I, I, I mean, let me change that. I don't think he faults this guy. I think he likes this guy. And he thinks this guy has some accomplishment. But you were helping me to see the guy couldn't answer anything. You put these questions on my heart and I thought these were questions that made you, God, irrelevant. But these were the questions you put on my heart that they're not being able to be answered by the Manichaeans remain unanswered until I found you. After it became sufficiently clear that he had no knowledge on the liberal arts fields in which I believed he excelled, I began to lose hope that he could open up and extricate the difficulties that concerned me. Though ignorant in these fields, he could still have possessed truth in the form of reverence, had he not been a Manichaean. 
Their books you see are full of interminable tales of the skies and the stars and the sun and the moon. Already I was starting to think that he couldn't do for me what I really longed for, which was to compare the numerical explanations that I'd read elsewhere, work out all the fine points and disentangle whether the Manichaean books were correct on these points, or at least whether they gave an equally persuasive account. Well, this, whether he knows it or not, he's confessing he had thrown himself in. He calls himself an auditor, but he's reading the Manichaeans in details. And he's, he's wondering why the footnotes don't work out. And so he has to talk to this guy. All right. It's not like he's heard a few fine speeches along the way and wants to see if there's anything to it. He had thrown himself into this. Remember, he talks about two, three conversions in his life. The first was to Cicero, um, if you will. And the second uh, was to Manichaeism. Nevertheless, I set before him these things to consider and discuss, and he quite sensibly and self-deprecatingly, Marxine likes this guy, didn't take that load on his shoulders. He knew that he didn't know this stuff, and he wasn't ashamed to admit it. He didn't belong to that tribe of loud mouths I'd endured in great numbers who tried to teach me while telling me not a thing. That guy genuinely had a heart. And though it wasn't facing you straight on, it showed a decent degree of carefulness about himself. He wasn't altogether inexpert in his lack of expertise, and he didn't want to engage recklessly in a disquisition by which he might well jam himself into a place he couldn't get through at all or easily back out of either. And when I found this out, I actually liked him more. The self-restraint of a mind that testifies to its own weakness is more beautiful than the things I was hot to know. And that, in fact, how I found him to be and when all the harder and more intricate questions were before him. Like, I just disliked this guy. Yeah, I, he couldn't answer the questions, but there's something attractive in humility, isn't there? Cisco and Ebert, I can never remember. I, I know who, which was which, but I can't remember who said it. They were talking about a Jane Austen movie. I think it was Pride and Prejudice. Might've been Sense and Sensibility. I, I have to watch them both again to remember which is which, but um, they, they were saying that the lead character, the woman, wasn't a Hollywood film star, glamorous, sexy, as, a, as the romantic lead, if you will. But this was the person who serves the poor in the town, spends time with a little old lady who does nothing but gossip and has nothing but troubles and complaints, but patiently gives her her time and all that. And then he said... Um, Yet I found her attractive. We have forgotten how attractive kindness is. It's like, that's what makes Jane Austen, Jane Austen, in part, is insights like that. And um, that's pretty good. Uh, raise your hand if you don't want more kindness in your life. Yeah. All right. The interest that I'd had in Manichaean writings was now in a shambles. I had even less hope about the other teachers among them, since in many things they preoccupied me. The man with such a great reputation gave me the impression I've just described. I got the best and he couldn't do it. But I began an intimate association with him on the basis of his interests instead. He was excited about the literature I was teaching to young men as a rhetorician at Carthage. I would love to know what he was teaching. I set about reading with him both things that he'd heard of and had a hankering for and things I thought were suitable for his intellect. So now they're teaching each other. However, once I got to know this man, 
any effort or resolve on my part to advance in that sect fell into oblivion. But not so that I cut myself off from them altogether. Rather, the upshot was more or less that not finding anything better, I decided to be content for the time being with where, never mind how, I'd rushed into headlong. Unless some preferable beacon should happen to beckon me. In this way, Faustus, who proved a fatal snare for many, now started to loosen the snare in which I myself was caught, though he didn't intend it or know it. Before we talk about the next paragraph about providence, why did, why did, if science, if natural philosophy wins this contest hands down, why doesn't he throw himself altogether in that? I mean, he's read the materials. This is Augustine. He knows this stuff. What's, what's going on with the Manichaean sect that's not going on with natural philosophy? All right. That would be, I think, one of the changes, in my opinion, between an ancient world and a modern world. In a modern world, this Manichaean stuff, not for everybody, not, not that there aren't people who fall for this and teach it. But that's not, that doesn't have the general appeal. It doesn't bring you in. It's not its own religion. Science has become its own religion uh, in the modern world. It, uh, again, a lot of great scientists who practice true faith. And uh, what was a phrase I heard from John Lennox, the Oxford professor, um, that, you know, you say that, uh, uh, Christian belief hinders science. Well, you'd have to explain that to Galileo and Bacon and Newton and people who wrote commentaries on the Bible. It didn't block them in the 17th century. It doesn't block us in the 21st. Still, there is a... The scientific community is a hard nut to crack. There's other ways of saying that. But um, that's part of it. When I taught on that book, Geisler. Yeah. I, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Right. There's a bunch of quotes in there from scientists who have gotten to the point where they will admit that there was a starting point, that there was a creation, that, that, that there's, there's intelligence behind it, but they can't bring themselves to even use the word God. Well, I, the creator yeah, God. And, and there's reasons for that. It, One, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, they want to be expert on what they're expert. Right. There's a humility. But so I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not going to talk about stuff I really don't know. But yeah, I guess I would think that it's hard to explain it without it. And there's, but, there's... But, but I think what I was trying to get to is to, to uh, jump on your point is it is a, it is their their religion, and you know their whole life is around it. And it must be super, super difficult, right? I mean, to, 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 to get to that point where to say all this, I've put everything into, right? And now I got to say, you know what? No, you know, it's um, climbing up that, there's a quote in there about climbing up the mountain, uh, all the scientists trying to get right. to the top of that mountain where they're finally going to have all the answers and they get up there and there's, you know, the, the theologian, there's the, the, the Christian. I was told that when the, yeah. fit, when the physics fit, finish and finally know everything, 
They'll have scaled the mountain only to find a theologian already seated there. Theologians love that. I, I learned that one in seminary. Um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a partial truth. Here, here's, uh, I think I need to be clear about this so that you don't think your pastor's a Neanderthal. Maybe that's not important. Maybe it's helpful to help you believe things. Science is a remarkable, maybe the most impressive field of inquiry in, in, uh, in, in, in human, human society. I think, it's just, I think it's incredibly impressive, in part because it's self-corrective. Scientists are the same people that used to bloodlet you. These are the same people that thought if you put a, some chemicals together, you could make gold. They progressed. It didn't work. They moved on to other things. They got better at it. They, uh, they're self-correcting. The manner of inquiry, the peer review, the standards of fact-making and theory um, engaging are, are very high. They're very rigorous. And yeah, there's a lot of bright people doing a lot of bright things. And, not, and I'm not even talking about the benefit. Yeah, they can cure you of cancer and they can... They can create nuclear weapons at the same time. But there, there's, I, th I think it's just flat out impressive. Um, and like Augustine, anything that can be oppressive can become its own end. But I think I've witnessed in members of my congregation who are scientists that there's a price to pay for being public about your faith in the scientific community. Um, I wish it weren't so, but I think it is so. But here's what I need to do as a pastor. If, it's in a, if, if I don't like the idea that the two white lock girls, Sarah and Katie, both become scientists. They were high school juniors when I came. And now they're both practicing. One's teaching science at Bishop's, Bishop's School in La Jolla. And the other is practicing science. I think she handles Ebola on a daily basis at, at some Navy installation. She's not Navy, but I think this is what Katie's still doing. And, and when they talk to me about, it's not a glass ceiling so much for them. They're young, they're not, not hitting the glass yet. They're in their twenties. Um, it's the public expression of their faith. That would be a hindrance. And I don't want that. I think these are, these are, our marvelous disciples of the master. I don't, I don't want to see them. Think. But here's what I want to make sure. That the thing I don't disapprove of in the scientific community that makes them have some qualities of a sect that we don't repeat in the church, that we don't become like that. And the if it comes from science, it must be wrong. Um, the... Uh, Um, Bible over science attitude. Just, just, just what science are you talking about? Yeah, it, I, it, I, it, I, I don't encounter that hardly at all. No, I, but, but I, I want to be careful of that. I think it's South, I don't think it's so much in my congregation, but uh, uh, let me take evolution as, as an example. <clears throat> I don't think my great, great grandkids are going to be taught it in the scientific community. They will have moved on. 
because they're so good at what they do. It won't just be a refinement. Now, some things you establish, say, I think we're always gonna know there's gravity. I don't think we got that wrong. And we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna refine it, but I don't think we're gonna exchange it. Um, but the theories, the, 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 the way that we try to explain things and therefore design the experimentation to test, you have to have some thoughts about things. You have to, you have, to have some trial and error. And I, I, I just think they're impressive. When I hear sometimes I have in my congregation about in our pandemic that they don't want to trust the scientists, I say, I want to, I want to make a distinction. What you're calling science, and the newspapers are calling science, that's not science, that's public health policy. That's science that's gone through three Seifers, including partisan politics and interest in keeping your job in a democracy by votes. It's gone through so many layers from science to the time it gets to public health policy. You can't call that science, right? And then therefore false science when, false science when it has to move. Yeah, you know, at the beginning, we weren't sure if we were supposed to wear masks. Remember that? That was a debate in the scientific community. Well, okay. We're pretty sure about it now. And this is not a fault. This is, this is a virtue. This willingness to, we got that one wrong. Now it's right. Now we know. Let's go with the knowledge. And yeah, there's always going to be error in it, but they know it. And so they, anyway, I'm preaching. Um, I'm on 14. Oh boy, we're getting to the end here, but we're not getting to the end of thing. You brought it about for me that I was persuaded to proceed to Rome and by preference to teach there what I'd been teaching at Carthage. And I won't bypass my testimony to you concerning the sources of that persuasion, since even in matters such as these, the most remote depths of your mystery, along with your most imminent mercy, must be considered and proclaimed. My reason for going on to Rome wasn't more money, it wasn't more prestige, uh, promised by the friends who said, you got to go to Rome, that's the place. Uh, not anything of that sort, but the biggest reason is that I was tired of the brats in Carthage. I was tired of the young men who were obnoxious. Okay. These are students. Yeah. Yeah. These, these are college freshmen. He's had it with them. They hang out in gangs. Augustine knows a gang when he sees one. Remember the pear tree is they come in, they terrorize the teacher. They, um, they disrupt um, they, if he, if he tried the slightest restraint, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a free contract. Um, there, he's not teaching six-year-olds, uh, uh, sixth graders at this point. And they're just, just rough. at Carthage, in contrast, so-called scholars show a disgusting, riotous wildness. They shamelessly shove their way in and almost given the impression that they're insane. They overthrow whatever system each teacher has set up to allow the students to advance. Uh, it's more than, is this on the final? It's, that's not fair, you can't do it that way. Let's, let's not learn anything, let's just negotiate who gets a good grade, whatever. With a stunning brain dead attitude. <laughs> okay, okay, so you don't like your students, I take it. They commit many acts of violence that would be punished by law if common practice in that city, meaning Carthage, didn't function as their influential protector, okay? 
So he wants to go to Rome where the students are better behaved. Now he finds out the Roman students have another problem. They don't pay you. They get all your instruction. They say, I've had it. Um, I don't feel any, they go to another teacher. They, they, yeah, they do the same thing. And then they go to another teacher and okay, not getting paid. That's a problem too. You knew what, uh, 15, you knew why I needed to leave Carthage and go to Rome, but you didn't reveal the reason to me or my mother who beat her breast quite brutally over my departure and who trailed me all the way to the sea. She went all the way down to the docks. Okay. Uh, but I tricked her as she was hanging on to me coercively, trying either to stop my journey, don't go to Rome or come along with me, let me go with you. I made up a story that I didn't want to walk out on a friend before the wind picked up and he set sail. So I'm going down to the docks just to be with my friend because who knows when the wind's gonna come up and he's gonna set sail and I wanna make sure I say goodbye. I lied to my mother, a mother such as I've described. I got away and got away with it. Because in your mercy, you remitted even this sin and saved me from the seawater, though I was full of abominable filth and kept me safe until I reached the baptizing water of your grace. When I was washed in that, the rivers would dry up that flowed from my mother's eyes, rivers she addressed to you daily for my sake, irrigating the ground under her face. Anyway, she refused to return home without me. And I barely persuaded her to stay that night at a spot right near our ship, a shrine commemorating the blessed Cyprian. Okay, Monica would hang out at a shrine of Cyprian. This is the most famous North African Christian until Augustine. And during that night, I slunk off and began my journey, which she didn't share. She stayed behind praying and weeping. So... Uh, he's 27 when he pulls this off. All right. This is why Monica's a saint, friends. She was seeking from you. What was she seeking from you, my God, with all those tears? But for you to keep me from setting sail. I love this insight into providence. She wanted me not to set sail. She knew that was the wrong thing. But frankly, she got that wrong. But your deliberations were profound. You're God. And you could hear that the hinge of her longing actually turned on, what it turned on, namely my conversion. You didn't attend to what she was seeking then, and your purpose was to make me into what she was always seeking. The wind blew and filled our sails, and from our nut sight the shore withdrew, the shore on which in the morning she lost her mind with grief and filled your ears with groaning, querulous laments. God, you knew better than Monica. You knew that I needed to get to Rome. I'm being a jerk. I'm lying to my mother. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. Got, I think Augustine thinks she's a saint. And this is just, I was just a bad boy. But you wanted me to get to Rome. She didn't see that. She doesn't have to see that. You're not answering the specifics of her prayer. Don't let this kid get on a boat. But you did answer a prayer that I would convert. Augustine will tell this story. You ready? A father is uh, ill, and God has determined his time is up. He has two sons, a good one and a bad one. The good one, seeing his father begin to fail, does everything in his power to prolong his father's life, to give his father comfort for the remainder of his life, 
to do everything, spend himself and all his resources to get his father well. Though Remember, God is determined. This guy's days are very limited. The other brother, the evil son, just wants the old guy gone. He can't wait to get the inheritance. And he's kind of glad to push him along. Make sure this guy dies as soon as possible. Then Augustine asks, which son was in the will of God? The one who participated in the dying of his father, which God had willed, or the one who resisted it? The answer, the good son, is the only one in his will. Because the will of God is to honor your father and your mother. It's not to control the world. And he cites this to answer the question, isn't Judas excused because what he did made for the crucifixion? And Augustine's answer is, no, the guy gets no points for it. Not even close. He betrayed a friend. That's the guy's legacy. Okay? But, and see what he's doing here with Monica. She got it altogether wrong except she was absolutely right, that God wanted my conversion. She got the going to Rome thing wrong, okay? But you disregarded all that since you were snatching me away through my desires in order to put an end to those desires. And her longing, which was physical, was taking a beating from the justified whips and sorrows. She had a passion for my presence, which is the way mothers are. But with her, it was far more than the case that was both. Yeah, you're 27, pal, okay? Maybe there's something happening here that... Um, um, Good psychologists would say she should have let it go a little bit more. But with her, it was far more than the case. Of she didn't know the kind of joy you were going to create for her out of my absence. But she didn't know, and therefore she wept and howled. And these tortures revealed the vestiges of Eve she had within her. As the groans, she searched for what she had given birth to with groans. The vestiges of Eve are not her sin. It's the pronouncement of the Almighty in the garden in pain, you will have childbearing. He does not interpret that as labor pains at the moment of birthing. He translates that as a mother's pain in bearing, raising, nurturing children. Ah, well, yeah. You know a mother that didn't weep at some point? Mothers don't know the difference between direction and uh, mothers know the difference between direction and distance. You just make a little turn away. You didn't go anywhere. You broke curfew by five minutes. Good grief. You know what? As if that matters. Well, it is. If you were testing, it matters. If you think you say 10 o'clock, I say 10 five. Guess what? I'm coming in. There, the, the difference, the distance of five minutes is nothing, but the direction is everything. This kid's turning away. Yeah? And the same thing with mothers that we think they're crazy, when their kids are a mile away, a mile away, and they remember her on Mother's Day and send a card. You know, the kid's living the life the mother would never choose, but the kid remembers his mother and says something earnestly grateful in a card, a Hallmark card, good grief on Mother's Day. And it's as if all is good because mothers understand direction. The kid's turning. 
he's turning back. He's got a long ways to come back home, but he's beginning to turn back. All right. I'll try to give mom some credit here. <clears throat> However, after in, indicting me for trickery and cruelty, she turned back to praying to you for me and returned to the home she was used to while I was in Rome. Don't worry, she's gonna, she's gonna end up in Rome later on. But there I was in Rome taking full force of, or rather taken under the protection of the lashes of physical sickness. He got sick, almost died. Um, go to the end of 16th, last paragraph. If such a wound had struck my mother's heart, it never would have healed. I haven't, in other words, his death. I haven't given a full enough account of the feeling she had for me. I haven't expressed how much more stress she suffered giving birth to me in the spirit than she had in the flesh. He's gone back to the Eve analogy. He's now reading it that Eve has pain in childbearing, the spiritual birth of children. That I have a, I have a friend. Uh, as time goes on, a better friend. Um, for uh, she's a bit older than me. She's a former president of a seminary, and she. Um, we went to general assembly meetings for thirty years to cancel out each other's votes. I don't think we've ever agreed on anything. But she's willing to say that we were talking about something in common. That it's not. It's not a very good thing. Um, that's common to both of us. She has to hide it from her only child, her sophisticated pagan son. And she's grieved by it. She's grieved that, I don't know, this guy's probably in his 40s or 50s and just won't participate in the faith at all. That's, that's grief. That's genuine grief. Okay, we got a choice here. Our time is up. And I'm on a 401 train in the morning. I don't have to go see my daughter. So we got two choices. Do you want to, there's a whole lot more in five. Do you want to? Do you want to pick up where we left off or you want to pick up in six? Or do a combination where you give us a nice quick synopsis. All right. I need to give you, I need to give a synopsis of the end of five. Starting with 18. 18 on, uh, but read six. Okay. I really like five. I should write in the version I have online. Yeah. Yeah. No. All right, all. Thank you. Keep proofreading, Charlotte. Yeah.